If you have your Bibles, and uh, I want you to take a moment, and, and we're going to turn. Would you turn to the book of Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1? And uh, I want to preach a little bit. And, and in, my, in my sermon, not that I'm going to necessarily say their names, but uh, it, we, we don't do this often, but as Brother Perryman mentioned, when you've got over 100 years combined and two uh, ladies that have taught, that deserves that, that, that accolade. And, uh, but I, I want to just encourage each and every one of you that are here to understand that the church is made up of people that want to work for the kingdom. And so we're going to talk about that. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation, but it will be on the screen in the King James Version. Uh, and, and so you can kind of see both of them at the same time. If there be any encouragement from belonging to Christ, any comfort from His love, any fellowship together in the Spirit, are your hearts tender and sympathetic? Then make me truly happy by, agree, by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one heart and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't live to make a good impression on others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourself. Don't think about your own affairs, but be interested in others too and what they are doing. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ had, that though he was God, he did not demand or cling to his rights as God. He made himself nothing. He took the humble position of a slave and appeared in human form. And in human form, he obediently humbled himself even further by dying a criminal's death on a cross. Because of this, God raised him up to the heights of heaven, gave him a name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Dearest friends, you were always careful to follow my instruction when I was with you. And now that I am away, you must even be more careful to put into action God's saving work in your lives, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you and giving you the desire to obey Him and the power to do what, pleasing, what pleases Him. And everything you do, stay away from complaining and arguing so that no one can speak a word of blame against you. You're to live clean, innocent lives as children of God in a dark world full of crooked and perverse people. Perverse people. Let your lives brightly shine before them. That is Paul's writing, and I want to encourage you to do exactly that, that we are to live our lives for others and to do the work of God. Why don't you just close your eyes for a moment, and why don't you ask God's word to speak to you as an individual. Jesus, we've had a great time. We have worshiped, we have honored, we have given, but now we come where we open the word of God, and we're asking that you would speak to each and every one of us here today, that Lord, you might let us grow in grace and in truth. Let us grow in the measure that you have called us to. We pray that the Holy Ghost, that salvation is not just a gift or a get into heaven free card, but Lord, Lord, it's so much more than that. Use us, we pray, for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Thank you so much for your patience today as we have taken some time to do some very needed things. I want you to think with me for a moment. What is the greatest asset of the church? It's a loaded question, I know. 
but you take time to ponder this out. When we think of assets, normally we think of money, we think of property, land, and buildings, and all of those are so important. I, you, you saw, and I don't know if you, if you got it, but just to give a plug for tonight's service, um, one of the things that a She's for Christ offering does, and, and a She's for Christ offering, we, we get all of the United Pentecostal churches across the, the, the North American continent, and many of them participate in this. And uh, um, Sister Cindy, she stepped out for a moment. I think that, that last year there was over $4 million that was given last year collectively with churches. And that's roughly what they're wanting this year. And that money goes out. It, it helps uh, here in the states of Missouri. And, and, and you know, money that came from the state of Missouri, a little bit goes back into it. It helps youth programs there and youth conventions and Bible quizzing programs. And, and it goes into North American missions. It helps uh, build what we call a church in a day. A, a pastor goes and it helps uh, fund some of that. And then it goes across. But I'm going to tell you, a great asset is a church building. I... I look and, and you've seen just over the course we've mentioned it here in the church and again if some of you want to donate and contribute you most certainly can uh, to some of the churches in Louisiana that were flooded out there in the Baton Rouge area you don't understand the asset that a church building is until you don't have a church building um, I, I've been overseas a, a little bit, not as much as maybe some of you have but I've been overseas and I've been in church buildings that were, were, were just basically a roof and you didn't have much, much of anything else. You had outdoor plumbing, outdoor facilities. And uh, in fact, when this church was started in 1963, it was a one-room schoolhouse on Sandrin Street over there. And uh, the Sunday school, what they did for Sunday school is they pulled the curtain across the, 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 the pulpit, the platform, and, and the kids went behind the curtain and they were taught and the pastor taught the, the adults out in the sanctuary. And if you had to go to the restroom, there was an outhouse out back. That was in 1963. And um, they didn't have any air conditioner, so you just open the windows. And in the in the uh, uh, winter time, someone had to get there early and put wood in a wood stove so that you could have heat. I'm kind of glad we have a nice building. That's a great asset. And uh, as you can see, it can be very full, and that's why we're doing this Give to Grow, so that we can have another nice building that's even bigger for others. Uh, a building is a great asset. Um, you know, I don't necessarily like it, and, and but it's just the fact of life. It costs money to do business. It, it costs money to turn the lights on. It costs money to uh, heat and air condition. It costs money to, to do the things that we need. And so you're giving, your tithes, and your offering. That's a great asset, and we appreciate that. And I promise you this church does our very best to be good stewards of what you give. That's a great asset. Your pastor, now let me just talk about your pastor, it happens to be me, but I'd like to think I'm a great asset in your life. The very fact that you come on a weekly basis and you sit under my ministry and you allow me to be a shepherd in your life and you allow me to, 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 to ask you questions and sometimes to call you up and say I missed you at church and maybe pry a little bit. I appreciate that and I'd like to think at the end of the day that your pastor is a great asset to this church. Now I was called, and, and, and you have to you have to, to understand the, the, the terminology. I got a call to preach from God. 
I was 15 years old when God spoke first spoke to me and, and began to direct my mind and direct my thoughts. I had people that confirmed what God had spoken. I went to Bible college. I, I, I got my degree in, in theology and, and I've studied. I, we, my wife and I, we have been children's evangelists for full time. In, in evangelists, we had a 34-foot travel trailer, fifth wheel, and a big truck. And that's what we lived in for three years. And we traveled all over this country and, and we preached. And at the end of the day, Brother Peters, you'll appreciate this. At the end of the day, we did our, or the end of the year, we did our taxes. And, of course, there's a lot of things when you're doing work like that that are deductible. All of our travel was deductible and things like that. At the end of the year, my, my, my net profit of traveling was $600. Now, I don't know how we survived. We did. The Lord blessed. I, I, I've been there. But this is not the greatest asset of the church. Now, yes, we need a pastor. We need a preacher. But I'm here to tell you today that the greatest asset of the church are those that sit in the pew. I want you to take a walk with me, and I want to just talk to you. I want to preach to you about the unsung heroes. The unsung heroes. And, and there's a couple things. Number one, I just want to say thank you for being a child of God. Thank you for doing the work of the kingdom. Number two, I want to encourage you that don't get weary in well-doing. To understand that every Sunday school class you teach, every song that you sing, everything you do for the kingdom of God, every time you lean over your fence and talk to your neighbor and you're, you're praying for your neighbor and you're talking to them about church every time you go to work and someone asks you, what did you do this weekend? And you say, well, I went to church and we had a great time. Everything that you do for the kingdom of God is valuable. I refuse to be, I refuse to be the one that says, I did it all. Because I've learned that ain't true. Number one, as great as my family is, and I'd like to think I have a part in that, I'm going to tell you right now, now she's not up here. Now normally I tell you don't tell people what I say when they're not up here, but will you please tell my wife, Tanae, after this, that I couldn't make it without my wife. I understand that. You know that song, and I'd sing it. And in fact, I should bring it up here, and I'd sing it. You're the wind beneath my wings. I mean, come on now. Those unsung heroes. None of us are anything by ourselves. And I want to take a, a obscure person that you know about in Scripture, but maybe you haven't thought about, and I want to show you. It's in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 2. The first time that you see... This character in the Bible by the name of Jonathan, from what I understand and what I have searched and researched and, and looked in commentaries, he was 30 years old. Jonathan was 30 years old. His father Saul had been the king of Israel for about two years when you first see Saul, uh, uh, Jonathan's named mentioned. He's the oldest son of the king. And there's not much known about those first 30 years until you get to 1 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 2. And I want you to take a glimpse of Jonathan's courage and faith in God. It says that, that Saul, he, he chose 3,000 men of Israel. There were 2,000 that went with Saul and Mishmash and on Mount Bethel. And then there were 1,000 of those men that went with Jonathan and Gibeah Benjamin. 
And then the rest of the people he sent uh, every man to his tent. And in verse 3, it's just one little phrase. says a lot. And Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that were in Geba, and all the Philistines heard it, and Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. Jonathan, there was a great battle that was fought. It was a fort, if you will. It's where the Philistines, or at least part of the Philistines, they were there, and 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 the Philistines and, and Israel were at war. Think back to David and Goliath and all of that story. And, and you have just one verse. And, and Jonathan overtook, Jonathan slew, Jonathan won. He defeated that garrison, sent him running. And you would think that, man, look at it. But watch what happens in verse number four. And all of Israel heard that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines. Did y'all catch that? Who did the work? Who did the work? There you go. Who got the credit? The king. And I understand that's how it is. If a soldier does a, a mighty act of valor, if a regiment does a mighty act of valor, then usually it's our president that would say, you know, he, he was there in a time of war. He was able to go through it. I understand what it is. But think of Jonathan. He was the one swinging the sword. He was the one doing the work. He was the one that was in the trenches fighting. But he didn't get any of the credit. If you go a little bit further in Jonathan's life, you see in verse 5 that the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel. Now we just mentioned earlier that there were 3,000 men of Israel that Saul gathered together. But the Philistines came, and in verse 5 it says there were 30,000 chariots. There were 6,000 horsemen and people like the sand which is on the sea in multitude, and all of them came. Let me tell you what happened. Jonathan defeated a garrison, and it got the Philistines stirred up. And so the Philistines, they gathered together 30,000 chariots that probably had two people in each chariot, a driver and a warrior that usually had a, had a bow. So you, so you had 60, potentially 60,000 people there and then you, you, you had 6,000 horsemen and they were fighting and they came and they pitched their, their tent and the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait. They were in a rock in a hard place. In verse 6 it says that the people hid themselves in caves. They hid themselves in thickets. They hid themselves in the rock and on top of mountains and even in pits. And Gilgal was, and some of the Hebrews went over the Jordan, the land of Gad and Gilead, and, and Saul, he stayed at Gilgal. And all of the people followed Saul, trembling. Now you take that a step further and you go to verse 19, and this is what the Bible says. The Bible says that in Israel there was not a blacksmith to be found. You have to understand, they, didn't, they couldn't go to the, the local store and buy a weapon. They couldn't, they couldn't go to the local gun shop and pick up armor. They, they didn't have any of that. In fact, there was no smith found throughout the land for the Philistines had said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. The Philistines had gone, killed or captured every blacksmith in the land, one that was able to make a sword, one that was able to make some armor. In fact, it goes a little bit further to say, that, that the Israelites went down and they sharpened their coulter and their axe and their mattock and, 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 and their goads and their axes, anything 
that could get an edge. Maybe it was that 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 thing that you that 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 uh that you you cut down the wheat with that sigh, or or maybe it was a shovel and they sharpened an edge of it. Maybe they just simply sharpened sticks, is what they call an ox goad. They did anything and everything to just have a weapon. Now, if you believe the Bible is true, and I hope you do. The Bible says in verse 22, it came to pass on the day of battle that there was neither a sword nor a spear found in the hand of any people that was with Saul or Jonathan with the exception of Saul and Jonathan. There were two swords in all the land and they were fighting 30,000 horsemen, 3,000 or 6,000 chariots and horsemen. And then we get to 1 Samuel chapter 14. Here they are, arrayed in battle against a formidable foe that had more weapons and more technologies. You're basically a a nation of farmers and, and agricultural people. They've sharpened sticks, for lack of a better word, and they're going to try to fight. It came to pass one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the man that bare his armor, Let's go over to that Philistine's garrison. This is a different garrison. He says, let's go over. And and, and Jonathan didn't tell his father. They just went. And Saul tarried in the uttermost part of Gabeah under a pomegranate tree. There was about 600 men that were with Saul. And and, and he was resting, probably trying to formulate how are we going to win. And Jonathan decided to go. There was a, a cliff, if you will. And Jonathan and his armor bearer, they went up on the the, the steep side of the cliff. The Bible says that there was a sharp rock on one side, another sharp rock on another. In my mind, I envision a a fissure in the rock, a cleft, you know, almost like a split. And Jonathan and his armor bearer, he said, let's go up over into the garrison of these uncircumcised. And it may be that the Lord will work for us. And the armor bearer said, hey, if that's what you want to do, Let's do it. I kind of like that attitude. It says, you know, so many people would have said, are you crazy? I mean, come on, look, there's, there's like 60,000 people over there. It's just me and you, really? But no, the armor bearer said, man, if you want to do it, let's go. Because I know greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. Let, let's go take it. And so they begin to carry. The Bible, again, says that Jonathan climbed up upon his hands and his feet. They were literally climbing and clawing their way up a cliff. And it was that, that as he climbed, and I don't know exactly what happened, but here comes the cry. The, the, the Philistine garrison wakes up and they begin to go. And maybe it was the way the terrain was situated, perhaps, that it was that narrow cleft that not all 60,000 people could rush at one time. And so the Bible begins to indicate that at least one at a time of the Philistines would come at, at Jonathan. And, and I love how it says, it says that, that, that Jonathan, uh, they fell before Jonathan. Jonathan would knock them down and the armor bearer would kill them. So much that the first slaughter of Jonathan and his armor bearer was 20 men. It was over a half acre of land. And then it kept going. And, and there was a great trembling in the host. And they, the earth quaked and they were trembled. It was, it was scared. They, they began, the, the Philistines, they, they began to panic. They ran over each other. They killed each other. They got scared. They didn't know what was happening. But where is Jonathan in the Bible after that? 
after all of these, I mean, two garrisons that Jonathan seems to take single-handedly, and there's nothing else. He was a master of the bow. You find one part of the David and Jonathan story of how far and how accurately Jonathan could shoot a bow. He was a warrior of warriors. They were good-looking men. They were strong. They were strapping. His father, Saul, was head and shoulders above all the men. Jonathan, he, he should have been the king. I mean, any other king, their son becomes the king. But God had ordained and God had instituted and, and instead of, of, of it being Jonathan that was anointed king, this little upstart of a 12 or 13 year old boy, this ruddy haired boy named David on the backside of a wilderness that watched over sheep and wrote songs to the Lord, it was him that God said, I want to be king. And yet even with that slight, Jonathan loved David. What would, have most, what would have made most men fly into a homicidal rage? Jonathan instead. Jonathan at the age of 30. David at the age of maybe 15, 16, 17. They became best friends. Jonathan possibly was old enough to be David's father. Yet loved him as a brother. It was Jonathan that when Saul would get mad and try to kill David and pin him to the wall with a javelin. It was Saul that would hide David from his own father. And yet nothing you ever hear about Jonathan. It says even in 1 Chronicles chapter 10 and verse 2 that the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons. And the Philistines slew Jonathan and Abinadab and uh, Malachshu, the sons of Saul. And the battle went sore against Saul. The archers, archers hit him and he was wounded of the archers. And so ended the saga of Saul and his family. And with that closing of Saul's death, the world seemed to forget. Oh sure, David lamented, and you can see that in the, in the scriptures, but as far as I know, no monuments were built to, David, to Jonathan. There were no songs that I can find that, that sung about the feats of Jonathan. There were feats of Saul. You know, Saul has slain his thousands. And there were songs sung of David. David has slain his tens of thousands. But there's no songs sung to Jonathan. There's no national holidays in his honor. He was an unsung hero. Yet if you were to ask David... If you could have gotten King David on a one-on-one -on -one interview, David would have said, one of the greatest assets in my life was Jonathan. Talk to David for a while and you would find that David needed Jonathan. That David was alive because of Jonathan. You would find that the unsung hero was one of the greatest players in the story David's life is mapped out almost from his, his childhood to his death. You don't have any other story fleshed out as David. But he would owe his life. He would owe his ministry. He would owe his ability to one name, Jonathan, the unsung heroes. It's John the Baptist that we read about. And I preached a message a little bit ago on it. But he was the son of Zacharias and Elizabeth. Elizabeth was barren, could not have a child. An angel appears unto Zacharias and prophesies that your, your wife is going to have a child. And Zacharias laughs. And so because of that, God shut his mouth. He, could, he was mute. 
He said that John was to be clean. No, no strong drink was ever to be drunk. A pious man that would end up spending most of his life in the wilderness of Judah. For 30 years, you know nothing about, Jonathan, about uh, uh, John the Baptist. But at age 30, in the middle of a desert, coming out with homespun rough clothing, eating locusts and wild honey, he comes. He was a preacher, a fiery preacher, the likes that Israel had probably never seen. One that was, was, had no regard to status or position or wealth of people. He didn't care if you were the king. He didn't care if you were the Pharisee. He didn't care if you were the priest. He didn't care if you were the beggar on the street. He preached repentance with a passion. John would shake his hand, his finger in the face of Pharisees and call them vipers. He would baptize hundreds and thousands of people. And it was him that Jesus walked down and said, baptize me. And Jonathan knew. He said, oh, no, 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 I can't baptize you. You're, you're Jesus. I, I'm not even worthy to tie your shoes. But it was John that baptized Jesus, our Messiah, the one that came down. He baptized him and the heavens opened up. It looked like a dove came down and said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And the earth shook and man, there had been no other preacher that had had signs and wonders like that. But it was John that said, I must decrease so that he can increase. Later on, you'll find that at least two of John, the Baptist disciples, became disciples of Jesus. But John never even got a chance to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. He never got a chance to sit there and hear the Sermon on the Mount or, or see the blind eyes open. In fact, later, John, just because he was just wanted to know, he said, go find Jesus and just make sure he's the one we're looking for or should we search for another. John the Baptist ended his life cooped up in a prison and then at the whim of some lewd uh, uh, king who for the favors of his own daughter, if you will, said, I'll give you whatever you want. And the daughter uh, said, ah, let me have John the Baptist's head on a plate. And so for some sexual favor, it seems, John the Baptist dies an undignified death. He quietly exits the stage. John the Baptist is in the Old Testament and he, he, he kind of transitions to the new. He's right in that place. Jesus appears and you hear no more about John the Baptist. An unsung hero. But yet if you would ever get Jesus aside, Jesus would say, I would never have been able to minister except there was one that came before. One you don't know much about, one you don't worship, one that died, but if you ask Jesus, you would find he needed John the Baptist. There's other unsung heroes of the Bible, people like Barnabas, people like Silas. You hear about Paul, but then you know that Paul and Silas were in prison. Silas preached as well, and he got the brunt end of that as they threw him in prison and beat, and, and you have that. You have John Mark. A young man that Paul didn't even want to take with him. and So Peter ended up taking John Mark. But great things happen. And then one of the stories that gets me is Aaron and her Exodus chapter 17 and verse 8. It says, Then came Elimelech and fought with Israel and Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us out men and go and fight Elimelech. And, and, and I, that's Moses, the pastor, the bishop, the one that, that gets to talk with God. He said, I'm going to go to the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. 
At this point, Moses is, is older. He can't swing the sword as, as well as he can with a Jonathan, or, or I mean with a Joshua, or a, a, a uh, Caleb. Or a... But it was that Moses climbs that hill that overlooks that valley. Moses carrying the weight of leading millions of people and, and, and seeing the up and down that happen. And, and he carries that and he goes to the top of the hill. And it came to pass, the word of God says, Exodus chapter 17 and verse 11, that when Moses would lift his hands, Israel would win. Have you ever tried to keep your hands raised for a long time? It hurts. And, and, and so Moses, his hands would droop. He'd get weary. His hands would fall. And when his hands fell, Elimelech would prevail. And here was Aaron and her. They were watching the proceedings that went on. And I don't know who it was that had the idea, but one of them said, I'm, I'm noticing a pattern. When the pastor's hands are lifted, then, 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 then the church is moving forward. But when the pastor gets weary, the church seems to kind of have a difficulty. And so they got a rock, they got a chair, and they sat Moses on it. And Aaron and her grabbed each of his hands and held them up. The Bible says Joshua discomfited Elimelech and his people with the edge of the sword. I remember vividly 2005. I was sitting under the pastorship of Brother Mark Jordan, a great man of God in my life that, that, that I owe many things that I am to his leadership. It was at Youth Congress in 2005. I can't remember where it was. But I was praying. I was a youth pastor at that time. We had about 40 kids that were at Youth, at youth Congress. And I was praying and I had my eyes closed. And I don't see a lot of visions. That's not something that God has allowed me. But I saw a vision that night. I saw Moses on the mountain with Aaron and her. But this time and I saw them standing on the arms of Moses. Moses couldn't lift his arms. And because of that, the battle was lost. And and God began to speak and these were some things that were going on in the church there in 2005 in Toledo, Ohio and, and God began to show me that there were people in the church that were hindering what God wanted to do and, and I remember going back and talking to my pastor in fact I even and I was a young young man but pastor gave me permission and I preached uh, that, a sermon about that and God began to just kind of change some people's vision because they're unsung heroes that you never hear about because of their work the church prevails in 1830 place was Rochester, New York the preacher was Charles Finney the results were that in 10,000 people in the population of Rochester, New York over 1,000 of them a tenth of the church came to Christ in that time there was a man that would pray for Charles Finney a prayer partner his name was Abel Clary and Finney would write this. We all know about Charles Finney. History bears out the great things that Charles Finney, the evangelist in the, in the early 1800s, began to do. Everybody knows him. You've probably never heard the name Abel Clary. But this is what Charles Finney writes. He says that Mr. Clary would continue as long as I did in prayer and would not leave until after I left. Clary never appeared in public but gave himself wholly to prayer. 
You can read of Charles Spurgeon. How many of you know him or at least have heard of him, the great preacher that was there, I believe, in London and, 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 and things and great results in his ministry. His church ran in the thousands uh, at that time and people would be affected by his ministry. One day someone came and said, Mr. Spurgeon, what's the secret of your ministry? Spurgeon said, I'll show it to you. Meet me early before church on a Sunday morning. That Sunday, the visitor met Mr. Spurgeon, Dr. Spurgeon, and Dr. Spurgeon went to the pulpit. And there behind the pulpit was like a trap door, and there were stairs that went down into a cellar. And in that cellar, there were over a hundred people gathered that would pray for their pastor for what he was going to preach. And he said, That's the secret. You don't know their names, but that's the secret. Which is why on Tuesdays and Sunday nights when I walk into the church and I see people praying, I can look back and I can see those are the ones that allows the Spirit of God to move. Not all the second men become noticed. For every Elisha that does more than his predecessor, Elijah, there's the Jonathans and the Hurs and the Barnabases and the Silases that you know nothing about. But if you talk to them or you talk to those that are with them, they would say it's because of their work that Paul could do what he did. The point is simple, and I go back to what we read at the very beginning. It says, Don't be selfish. Don't live to make a good impression on others. Be humble. Think of others as better than yourself. Don't think about your own affairs, but be interested in others and what they were doing. Say, Pastor, what are you trying to say? Very simple. The point is not me. The point is not you. The point is not you. The point is the kingdom of God. What can I do for the kingdom of God? And while I know, and, and we need to, we needed to honor Sister Dawn and Sister Peters, but they would be quick to tell you they didn't do it for the flowers and the little gift that we're able to give and the words. They did it because they realized that it's not my will but thine be done and they wanted the kingdom of God to flourish. To get up and be here early on a Sunday and come and preach to snotty-nosed kids that don't always have the best manners and whose parents probably sometimes get mad at the teachers because it happens. But they did it because it's not about me. It's the kingdom of God. The kingdom needs more unsung heroes. The kingdom, God needs more of those who are worried about his agenda and not our own. Someone that says, I may never get any credit. I may never stand behind a pulpit. I may never get my name carved in the lights. I, I may never get an award, but I'm going to work for the kingdom of God because it, I, I just know the little bit that I can do brings revival. And what I can do, oh, I, I know that, that, that pastor gets a lot of credit. When we give those offerings and they give those plaques for She's for Christ, it always has my name on it. But I know good and well I didn't give all that. When they talk about growing churches and, and they say, Brother Buford, how, what, what did you do? How, how did you go in, in eight years, almost nine years? How did you go from nine to 140? And, and they want to know all the secrets and how good I preached. My goodness, y'all hear me all the time. Y'all know it ain't all that great. Y'all know I mess up and slur my words and sometimes I forget my iPad don't work and sometimes I'm just tired. But I'll tell you what I tell them. I say, well... I wish you could meet my congregation. 
Because let, let me just tell you, uh, Sunday mornings we have about 140. Sunday nights we have about 120. Wednesdays we run about 110. But I know a lot of churches, they'll run 200 on Sunday morning. And on Sunday night they'll run 50. Let me tell you what Lighthouse has that a lot of churches don't have. It has consistent, hungry I've heard pastors, it drives me crazy. I want to punch them, but that's not Christian. Sister Cindy, I get in trouble. Brother Bernard to take my license. I've had pastors, you talk to them, how's your church? I'm so sick of them people. They drive me crazy. Nobody ever want to works. Nobody ever want to gives. Nobody ever want to comes to church. All they got is problems. And I'm sitting there going, good night. What did I deserve? What did I get to deserve a church that, that while there's some problems and there's some situations, I look out every morning and people are coming and they're raving and they're worshiping their hands. And I just think back and I say, Lord, thank you for a church of unsung heroes that says whatever I can do. Do I need to mop the floor after a dinner? I'll gladly do it. Do you want me to pick up the trash? I'll gladly do it. I'll work in the nursery. I'll be a Sunday school teacher. I'll greet. I'll shake hands. I'll play the Just whatever I can do. And I lift my hands and I say, thank you, God, for a church of unsung heroes that may never get their name recognized, but I promise you there will be the greatest recognition one day when you stand before the throne of judgment and he looks at you and he's not going to say, well done, Pastor Buford. He's not going to say, well done, because you preached a great sermon that wooed people. But he's going to look at you and hopefully he looks at me and he's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. No one may know your name, but I promise you everything you do for the cause of Christ, God takes notice. He said, do it for the kingdom, not the glory. Would you stand today? I'm doing two things today. I'm honoring the unsung heroes of this church that gather every week and sit in these pews. But I'm also hoping somewhere in all of this that I'm lighting a fire unto you. You that may have have, have grown a little cold. Perhaps you were really involved. And then through life and through the cares of life, you haven't done much. I'm, I'm just wanting to encourage you. We need you. How many of you remember the great theologian, Dr. Seuss? Did you know that? I've got the bio, one, of the, one of the biographies of Dr. Seuss. His life is very interesting. He wasn't always the, the great children's writer. In fact, he was a very racist man in his youth. Has horrible cartoons that were, that were in that time period. And, and, and you can read about it. But somewhere, he changed. And what you know of Dr. Seuss was later in his life when God touched him. And really be honest, he is a great theologian. One of the greatest things about the church, one of the greatest views of the church is that of Horton Hears a Who. Remember that story? If not, you need to go get it. It won't take you long, I hope. Most of you ought to be able to read it pretty quickly. But it's about the Whoville that lives on basically the head of a dandelion. Somehow... They get thrown, and, and Horton is the elephant. He's the, he has big ears. He's the only one that can hear him talk, and he carries that little dandelion everywhere, and he protects that, that, that little microscopic city full of people. 
And that mean old kangaroo takes that that dandelion tuft and throws it into a field of dandelion tufts and, and, and Horton spends days and nights combing it trying to find that, that, that little dandelion tuft and he finally finds it and he hears the cry of the who's and, 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 and he goes and no one can hear it and they're going to they're gonna do something bad to Horton. They think he's crazy and so finally Horton says we've got to let the world hear. And so one by one the little who voices gather together one by one, they begin to scream and holler, and no one can hear it. And to find the mayor runs and finds that one little baby who that wasn't doing anything. And he says, call, scream, holler. And when that voice got added to the mix, the world heard. I'm telling you today, the revival that God has in store needs your voice. I know there's a lot of things you do and you're good at it. But the greatest thing you ought to be is a voice of the church. There, there's a limited reach that this pulpit has. There's a limited reach that I have as an individual. But together, every voice, every hand, every work, the world will see. And it will stand, the church will stand on the shoulders of unsung heroes. I want us just to begin to come. I think it'd be great for each one of us to gather around this front as close as we can. And I think you and God ought to talk. If you're working for Him and you're doing everything you can, why don't you let God give you that, that pat on the back, if you will. But if you're here today and you could do more, would you let His voice speak to you right now? Would you let Him call you? There's Sunday school teachers needed. There, there's greeters needed. There's ushers that are needed. There are prayer warriors that are needed. There are things that this church has that we need. We need your voice. Would you add it to the mix? And together, us unsung heroes will make a difference. Would you call on him? Would you pray in Jesus' name?